HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you so much for once again tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. Lots of food news these days. Uh, the last 24 hours has been pretty active um, here in New York City. Uh, the city just posted a ban on styrofoam that'll go into effect on July 1st. So changing up to-go containers across the city. Also, um, the indictment of Mrs. Cho, the Korean air official, um, who, who's known for her nut rage, um, having, having undergone the uh, affront of being served cashews in a package, not on a plate, um, holding up an entire airline of folks. Um, kind of a crazy story there. But today we're talking about something a little closer to our work here on the farm report, foie gras. Now, foie gras is the fattened liver of waterfall, uh, usually duck or goose. And for the past several years, um, sailor production of force-fed foie gras has been banned in California. But as of yesterday, U.S. District Judge Stephen A. Wilson lifted the ban um, on selling um, in, in restaurants or in retail shops foie gras, not, not producing but selling. Kind of been an interesting timeline. Uh, the ban was passed uh, way back in 2004, but didn't go in effect until July of 2012. Uh, you might be wondering what the gap is there for. Well, if you were a producer of foie gras, um, they were they presenting an opportunity to find another way to to create it, another way um, aside from um, force feeding the the geese. And and then in July of 2012, it, it was completely banned. Um, a lot of chefs across California would make a habit of gifting it on menus or um, kind of surreptitiously uh, giving it to their diners, risking fines of up to $1,000. Um, and just this past October, the Supreme Court refused to hear um, a challenge on the ban. Um, so we're excited to find out a little bit more about what's uh, 
what's happening in this story. We're on the line with Rick Bishop of Hudson Valley Foie Gras. Rick, welcome to the show. Good morning. Or good afternoon. <laughs> well, it's great. It's great to have you on. Now, Hudson Valley was one of the plaintiffs in this case. Is that right? Correct. So what? Um, what is the? the well, yeah, what's the mood up there? Uh, exuberant. I mean, we've we've fought a long time, and everybody's really excited to see that this ban has been lifted. Why? Um, why did you guys decide to get engaged in the suit? I mean, it has not been a, a small ordeal. Uh, it's been a long time. I'm sure a lot of money. Why take such uh, interest in what's happening in California? I mean, you guys produce here in New York. We um, every time there's been a, a proposed ban within uh, a state or a municipality, we have jumped in and fought the ban because we are actually very proud of what we do. Our doors are open to the public to prove what we do is good farming. So we had uh, we had to fight in twelve other states. Maryland was a near loss. We won, though, Maine. We, we, we fought really hard. We fought in Massachusetts, Connecticut. Um, whenever we've had a state that was informed by our opponents as to what they, they feel our practices are, we invited legislators or chefs or representatives from the area or that state to come see the farm. And we have, it's just our, our MO is to show what we do and then let people decide whether or not it should be banned. And we so we, we will not give up fighting because we are proud of what we do, and it's it's good farming. And are you guys optimistic that the state's not going to appeal? I mean, apparently this could be just a temporary lift on the ban. What, um, what's the word on the street? Well, an appeal is, you know, just an automatic procedural uh, thing. But the fact is uh, we remain open for examination. We remain open and optimistic that good practices, good policies can bring, um, you know, the truth should keep the doors open for foie gras in California. Yeah, no. So the the technique of producing foie gras, you know, has a long history. I mean, apparently the ancient Egyptians um, enjoy, enjoyed foie gras. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, I would love to go through some of the physiology and, and what uh, talk about the work that you guys do at Hudson Valley and, and why you guys feel like you stand apart um, from maybe other foie gras producers or what you represent for the foie gras, gras industry. I mean, what are people getting wrong in their kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, gut reaction to force-feeding <laughs> waterfowl? Our, our methods are more like the ancient Egyptians than they are uh, modern agriculture. Um, and but at the same time, we've employed the best animal welfare specialists and consulted with a collection of different people that specialize in animal behavior and duck feeding around the country. Anyone that could come in and contribute to what, to improving our methods uh, were brought in. I, uh, we hired a humane auditor to come through and look at our farm and make some suggestions, and we modified wherever we needed to, you know, make improvements we did. We have had a uh, an ongoing process of taking inputs and putting them into our procedures here to make sure that we are doing it the best possible. We hired uh, the poultry person from Temple Grandin's uh, program, and we we gained a lot there. And we actually have continued to listen to the workers, listen to you know any observers that can help us make this a, a place where the animals are, well, they're fat and they're happy. 
Yeah. Well, I think too often I feel like uh, I wonder if people are responding more to bad, you know, bad farming management practices versus the actual foie gras process. And and for your team, you know, the decisions start right with the genetics of the ducks. Can you talk about the the Moulard duck a little bit and why that is the right duck for your team? Um, well, the Moulard was basically the reason why the owner of the farm came to America because when uh, foie gras was produced in France over the centuries, it was done with geese. And the Moulard is a cross between the Pekin and the Muscovy, and that duck showed incredible vigor and, and uh, disease resistance and had the ability to grow very quickly and have a beautiful liver inside. So when the Moulard was discovered, uh, Izzy and I, the owner of the farm, came to the United States to make foie gras in America. And so that duck's vigor and, and size and disease resistance opened the door for um, commercial agriculture, if you will. So, um, and even amongst those moulard ducks, there's what we call you know heritage strains that are slower growing but have good demeanor, and those are the ones that we still work with today. You know, we're we're sort of old-fashioned in our method and our choice of genetics, not falling into the you know high-strung fast-growing types, even in the moulard category. We're, we're still doing it the old way. And you guys are a little different in that, like, all your production happens in one space. I mean, it's kind of like a one-stop shop. What are the advantages from an animal welfare standpoint uh, of that kind of um, line of production? Well, the, the only times we've ever had trouble with our uh, animal uh, inspections were when you move ducks. You, you have to be very careful moving ducks. So the more, uh, and you know, the more we can do all the raising the ducks in one location, the, the better it is for the ducks. It's moving them is always a little stressful on them, and we've had to find ways to make it less and less stressful because that is the challenge. So having a, a, a contained farm here where we do everything right here on the farm has really been important to animal welfare and handling. You're like reducing those stress points. And I want, I think it's got also important to note that you are doing a, a cage free production and that is a typical of foie gras production or no? No, we're, we're, uh, we're painfully out of date. The, the modern foie gras duck can be raised in, uh, 70 to 80% of the time, uh, with half the labor that we expend and, but it has to live its last two and a half weeks in a little cage and be fed, you know, uh, with a pump. And our ducks are fed by hand by the same person at the same time every day, uh, slowly, small meals, and they get a lot of small meals that make them nice and fat. So I think, too, it, it's, um, you know, I feel like foie gras in a lot of ways is an easy target. It's a specialty product. It's, you know, associated with uh, high-end cuisine. And I think if you're, you know, if you're generally opposed to the manipulation of animals for food, um, you know, you're, it, it seems weird that, like, it, it's picked out amongst so many kind of, like, horrible things that are happening in commodity agriculture today. You know, when you think about the chicken industry, the poultry, you know, the poultry industry more generally, pork, beef, um, you know, it's hard to kind of generalize a whole category. And yet for foie gras, it seems like kind of people are, are very comfortable, you know, drawing a line. So what I want to talk about a little bit is some, some of the information that was listed on, on your site that 
um, was talking about the physiology of the duck. Because I think for us as, as, you know, humans, as people, when we think about being force fed, you know, it brings up... Um, it brings up a lot of things when we imagine it kind of happening to ourselves, but our physiology and duck's physiology is pretty different. So maybe you can kind of take us through, you know, the throat lining and the feed sack and, and the absence of a gag reflex and, and help us understand a little bit why the kind of uh, the feeding process is not the same for a duck as it would be for you or I, per se. Yeah, if we, if, if, if we physiologically have fat deposited on our liver, it's hepatic lipidosis. We would be ill. Uh, a fatty liver, you know, it's often associated with alcoholism. Um, in humans, it's a bad thing. And it's a disease, a pathology. Uh, as you know, the USDA inspects every bird, and they wouldn't let a bird out of here if it had a pathology of any sort. So that, that you have to clear the air right off the bat that a duck has a natural physiological ability to store fat on their liver, and that's what they do to get through the winter or migration or periods when there's no food available. So they store fat in their liver, that's normal. And there's a lot of cases of uh, waterfowl that have actually had foie gras in them uh, where they had an abundant food supply out in the wild. Um, so it's a normal and reversible process for a duck to store fat on its liver. I would say that in a, in a really good environment, you can get a gigantic liver, and we do get that here by giving the ducks an ideal environment to be able to make a nice big fat liver. To do that, you need to give each duck a dose of food that is um, comfortable for them as often as you can, as often as they finish digesting the last meal, you feed them again. And to do that, uh, you need to insert a funnel down their throat. And like you mentioned, there's a, a calcified flesh in the throat of a duck or a goose because they've evolved in order to be able to swallow a fish or, you know, with spines on it. So their, their throat is calcified. It can handle the insertion of a metal funnel into the duck's throat because of the structure of their throat. We would, you know, and then we also have a gag reflex that they do not have. They breathe through their tongue. and As they do that, they can be swallowing a fish or something and still breathing without suffocating. So there's physiology between storing fat in the liver, having a calcified esophagus, and having the ability to eat and gorge. I mean, they go out into a field and eat a bunch of corn, and they'll run back in and hide where they're safe. And they have a pouch, like a chipmunk or a, a pouch, right in their bottom of their esophagus where they store their food and they slowly digest it. So... In many ways, it's, it's amazing how good the duck is at making foie gras. It's, um, of course, it has to be done in a way that doesn't harm the animal, because farmers obviously don't benefit when they harm an animal. Uh, They'd be out of business. It's pretty simple. Right. Well, that's, Logical. I mean, the other the other kind of critique you hear is that mortality rates in foie gras production are much higher. And I, I guess that's a little confusing because I think there's probably a 100% mortality rate. So uh, f for any kind of agriculture system, I mean, that kind of goes with the territory. But can you talk a little bit about when people talk about mortality rate, what, what they're actually talking about? Um, yeah, there's... As we went through the, uh, the whole uh, having a humane auditor here, we looked at mortality and reasons for mortality at every stage in the life of the duck. And it begins with them as, uh, as babies. We have them climbing up and down a ramp 
to get their water so that they have stronger legs and they have, and then they're in better shape so they're not you know fat and out of shape their uh their their fitness is incredibly important for the first 10 or 12 weeks of their life so that was a big start to make sure that they come into the feeding real strong and able to be uh and enjoy their their last few weeks of being fed uh, the other thing is to call the animal so that you have a uniform flock. You take the smaller ones or the larger ones, which could be bullies, and you pull them out so that you have a very uniform flock so there's not any stress in between the sizes of the different ducks. So they're, they're all, uh, and that makes a big difference. We, we've had to have uh, culling and, and, and keeping the flock uniform has been a really big uh, drop in mortality. So between pre-feeding fitness, calling the flock, and general handling, um, how you move them, how you care for them, the uh, is, is cuts mortality way down to the point where we are now at a mortality level similar to that of other poultry, you know, chicken or, or turkey, um, and even less in some instances when um, everything's going well. So it's not an abnormal mortality rate for poultry on our farm. It is uh, something we work on and watch very, very closely. That's the first thing that the auditor would look at to see where if something went wrong. You know, if something happens, you have to fix it. Right. And so I think that's another important point to insert here is that the, the force feeding isn't happening for the entire life of the animal. It's a discrete period um, prior to slaughter. So would it be correct to say that, like, before the forest feeding time, that, like, the methods that you use to ensure a healthy flock are similar to that from an animal welfare standpoint that you would use for any other type of poultry that wasn't destined for foie gras? I mean, are there special things that happen because these um, animals are, are going to be undergoing the forest feeding that, that you do different from other poultry? Well, there's some trade secrets, you know, that I could <laughs> kind of let you in on. We, uh... And our, uh, like in the period before the duck is getting ready to go into the hand feeding, uh, we take a couple of weeks and we, uh, we lower their feeders down at the same exact hour that they're going to be getting their meal when it's hand fed to them. We take the same, same feed and we lower the feeders down to the floor level where they can run around and grab the feed and get them used to feeding at the same regimented time every day and get them used to eating a lot because they're not going to get fed for another eight hours. And so we, we kind of get their tummies stretched out, if you will, like like I do for Thanksgiving. I, you know, I practice Thanksgiving for two or three weeks prior to Thanksgiving just so that when <laughs> Thanksgiving arrives, I'm ready to go. And so we do that to that you wouldn't do normally with other ducks. You feed them at the exact time for a limited amount of time, and then they'll fill their crop with food, and they'll sit around and digest that. So they they start making their foie weeks before we actually hand feed them. It's a little trick of ours. It's a gentle transition, yeah. So the let, let's talk about the, the hand feeding process. Um, I'm curious how long it lasts, and if you can talk about the feed composition during this time. Is it different um, than what they eat prior to from like a nutrient or protein standpoint? Does something change, and, and what's the duration? Um, traditionally, it's... it's a little more than three weeks. Uh, each duck is, is checked each time we feed, and if they're ready, you know, after three weeks, we take them. 
we don't keep trying to feed them. They're, they're not forced to eat. Once they've built their, their well, for lack of a better term, built that foie, and it's ready to go, we harvest the ducks. So they're, they're, they come out at different times over the last week, but it's basically a three-week feeding. And, and what about the actual feed? Does that change? Yeah, we go a lot. There's a lot of protein at the beginning of their life because they're growing so fast, and then it's a less protein and more starch at the end of their life to fatten them up. And now, the, I mean, I think the other thing that's a benefit of having the production, so many aspects of the production all in one space is, you know, you're obviously not just like harvesting the liver and, and tossing the rest of the duck in the compost pile. Can you talk a little bit about how, how the rest of the animal is utilized? Uh, yeah, that that is... Uh... Part of the responsibility of you bringing an animal into this world is to respect it and then utilize its gift, its life, you know. So to do that, you need to find a market for um, everything, and which it's, it, a duck will give you two pounds of foie gras, two pounds of duck breast, two pounds of legs, two pounds of fat, and three pounds of bones. And those are the easy easily utilized uh, gifts from the duck, if you will. But then there's the tongues, the heart, the gizzards, the testicles, the necks. Um, and they all have gained popularity in the last... I mean, this, this, this generation of chefs have ethics and feel responsibility to utilize the whole animal. As you see on a lot of menus, there's a lot more awful, there's a lot more full animal serving. It's not just the primals like it was in the 80s and 90s, let's say. So we have a pretty strong market now for hearts, gizzards, necks, tongues, and mostly, most of the testicles, too. So it's all there. You've know, you got you to use everything that the duck's going to give you. And uh, it's a complete bunk that we would just take the liver out and throw the duck away. Right, right. Well, Rick, um, unfortunately, we are out of time. We're going to be chatting with your colleague, Ariane, from D'Artagna in the second half of the show, but wanted to say a, a big thank you for joining us today, and, and congratulations to your team at Hudson Valley Foie Gras. I'm sure everyone is up for some celebration um, yesterday and today and, and for the you know foreseeable future. The, the uh, invitation stands to visit our farm. That is the key difference between us and any other American farm. Or We just come see what we do, and if uh, if you do, I'm sure you'll be comfortable eating foie gras. Well, we should we we would send that recommendation to any type of protein that people are consuming and, and consuming. Um, we should be so lucky uh, to have that invitation from all farms that we buy food from. If you guys want to find out more about uh, the work they do up at Hudson Valley Foie Gras, you can visit them at www.hudsonvalleyfoiegras.com. Hang tight. We're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, we'll be on the line with. Ariane Degoon from D'Artagnan.
Shadow Puppets by Odetta Hartman. Hello out there, it's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's heritage turkey, Japanese steaks, Berkshire pork, or Navajo churro lamb chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. This is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and today we're talking about the recent uh, lift of um, the ban on foie gras out in California. We are joined now um, by Ariane Degun of D'Artagnan. Um, started back in 1985, and today one of the nation's premier, premier sources for free-range organic and heritage meats and charcuterie. Uh, Ariane has a, the distinction of being from a long line of, of duck and waterfall lovers, and we're really thrilled to have her join us for the discussion today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. So um, what is the mood out at D'Artagnan today? Ah, it's very mixed feelings. Very mixed feelings. You know, I, the news came yesterday, and... It's difficult to be celebrating when your country and half of the world is in mourning, you know. And uh, and so on one side, I, I would like to be super happy about the lift. And on the other, there are very much graver things going in life in, in the world today. So, um, But hey, I'm happy and 
I'm happy that this list uh, finally happened. It, it, it was long overdue, long overdue. Um, we, we did it. We, we battled a lot. We tried to uh, to do it through a petition uh, at the Supreme Court. Uh, we were in appeal all along. Um, that law was wrong on so many levels, so many levels. First, because I know, and the two American farmers and the other two uh, Canadian farmers know that there is no more stress in ducks than there is in, in well-raised uh, uh, artisan um, uh, farmers raising chickens, um, and, and much less than in the, uh, the all those those feedlots filled with factory farmed uh, beef, for example. So that's the one wrong. The, the second wrong is that this law was totally uh, vague, um, forbidding to force feed a duck. So what does that mean, force feeding a duck, when in the wild during migration they force feed themselves? So uh, how vague can you be? You know, in the morning, so today, uh, um, the Thursday morning, my duck is uh, 12, day, 12, 12 days into the, uh, the last stage. How much food should I give him? If, 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 uh, if he cannot eat more than he eats in nature. In nature, sometimes for a whole week they don't eat at all because they cannot find any food. It's a supreme uh, uh, stress. Sometimes, because it's just before migration, they force themselves. So what does that mean, not for feeding? What does that mean? Well, how much food... <laughs> Can I or cannot, can't I give them as a farmer? So, uh, and, and the last and the last one, and that's the one that we felt uh, would appeal most in the court and would be the easiest to win, and, and that's how we, we won the appeal, um, is that this law is anti-constitutional. You, you can't forbid in a state something that is uh, perfectly legal in, in the other state. Uh, and forbid the commerce, you know, commerce between one state to another. So, so yes, I am happy today uh, with a but, with a but. <laughs> but yes, I'm happy today. Yes, of course, of course. And my condolences. I know that um, Francis is serving an, a national day of mourning today, and and definitely our hearts and and thoughts. Um, go out to them and to you and, and to, to everyone who's been impacted by this. And it, it's, it's really a horrible, we, horrible we tragedy. Have been, we, yes. we all have been. Of course, I'm more sensitive to it because I'm, uh, I was born in France and I'm, I'm French, but we're all, we're all, the whole world is mourning. You know, this is terrible. What's up? This tragedy is, is, yeah, it's very, very concerning. Um, I, I, I was in thinking of a, a, I reached out to a, a, a girlfriend of mine yesterday because I was feeling very down in the morning and she said, you know, um, there are, are moments when it's very appropriate to feel, to feel sad and to be upset and it's okay, it's okay to like, um, have that and to share that. And she's like, in, in a weird way, it saves me from, um, 
you know, it allows me to recognize, you know, what are the true challenges in life, you know, and, and the moments where I'm feeling sad that my, you know, hair is flat or some other kind of non-important thing. Um, it comes into great clarity, um, kind of what is important around community and, and spirit and, and culture. And, and I was hoping that maybe you could talk a little bit about um, why foie gras is something that uh, you feel so strongly um, and so many feel strongly about pr- preserving and supporting. Um, what is the tradition there? What is its role in uh, French cuisine and now in American cuisine as well. Yeah. Why is this an important area to to focus on? Yeah, yeah. And and first, I, I totally agree with your friend. I mean, it, it, it's big tragedies put everything in in relation to it. And and so while this for us is a huge victory, the uh, overturning the ban. On the other side, uh, you know, it is with, it, it is a small step toward democracy in a day when democracy is, is so threatened in the world in general, in a much bigger uh, way. Uh, but um, for us and for me, it's so important. Uh, it's so important that that this ban was lifted because foie gras is the I'm not going to say the cliche thing, the epitome or whatever, but it is one of the important things in gastronomy. And gastronomy is uh, one of the pleasures in life. Uh, uh, we call it here, we, we call it being a foodie. Or, and, but it's, it's, we need this. We need this to create a civilization, to have a culture. It's part of culture. And so... Every time you take off, you take out a little part of that culture, you, you are going towards um, a future where people are going to eat little pills to survive and, and not, not uh, have the intellectual, um, the intellectual happiness and, and, uh, and, and thinking around the culture. You know, and and so every time you you forbid something, whether it's a food or it could be a music or it could be uh, a drawing of a of a certain god, every time you forbid that, you you impede the culture uh, to uh, to develop and to and to um, thrive. So in in my part in gastronomy. Um, Foie gras is a big is a big part of that. It's um, uh, it's an ingredient that uh, my father in Southwest France well, he's still around. He's not um, cooking uh, in the restaurant anymore. Uh, he was famous. He had two Michelin stars um, restaurants. He was famous for those dishes, and so it comes to me as a sensitive uh, matter. But it is it is. Uh, when you look at the French techniques and the French cooking, um, but also other civilizations, uh, uh, it's such an excellent product that that is. Without that, you lose a color on the palette. You know, as a as a painter, you're gonna miss the blue, and you can do every beautiful painting as you want. You're gonna miss that one color, um, and and. So I'm 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 very very glad that uh, all the Californians um, 
are back with all the all the all the chefs in California are back with all the colors of the palette in their hands to be able to show uh, all their talents uh, there. The the at the end of the day, we should we we should stick to regulating. I think eh, uh, uh, raising the animals the right way. And raising the animal the right way, that means without stress. That means without medication. That means taking the time to do it, trying to keep all the heritage, um, uh, slow-growing breeds for, for a, a huge reason. And the main reason, which is it's better on the plate. At the end, it's better on the plate. And that's where we differ with the, um, the, the, the vegetarian extremists, is that... We are on the same page. We should not stress the animals. We should raise them well. Where we differ is that at that point, somewhere, I'm uh, willing to kill them for the pleasure of, of life, and they are not. Yeah, I think, you know, I was reading um, an article on Gawker this morning by Hamilton Nolan, and it was titled, Foie Gras is for Assholes. And... Um, you know, it just, I, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, just kind of missing the mark all the way down the line. It seems to be drawing this very arbitrary distinction around one particular product when um, I would I would be surprised if, if Mr. Nolan had a, the same critique of the, you know, dairy industry, the poultry industry, the pork industry, the beef industry. And, and you're in a unique position because through D'Artagnan, you're dealing with, multiple species um you know when it comes to animal welfare in particular do you see a distinction between foie gras and animal welfare in foie gras production that's any different from producing a a, a beautiful pork chop or steak or um you know no 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 there is no difference we're using the morphology the natural morphology of the animal and the natural propensity of the animal of the bird, of the duck or goose, to foresee itself just before migration, to have this natural propensity to expand their liver, to make it that, that beautiful and delicious, uh, extremely delicious uh, product. That said, Mr. Norton is totally allowed to say what he's saying. This is what it's all about today, and today especially after uh, yesterday's tragedy. You are allowed to think whatever you think. And, and I'm really glad that the Californians today are allowed to eat or not to eat foie gras, but they have the choice. I'm, I'm not telling you you have to eat foie gras, but please don't tell me that I cannot eat it. Ariane, I think that's a, a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us. Definitely um, my continued thoughts with you and, and with everyone out there listening. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. For folks who want to learn a little bit more about Ariane, I definitely recommend checking out the Evolutionary series on Heritage Radio Network. We have a great extended piece with her. You can find that on our website. Um, you can also learn more about D'Artagnan by visiting them at www.dartagnan.com. This program, like all 39 of our weekly shows, is available for free. Uh, you can download us on iTunes or Stitchers. If you like us, please subscribe. Please leave a comment. That helps a bunch. Um, also visit our website, heritageradionetwork.org, uh, where you can check out all kinds
kinds of different great shows, uh, any aspect of food, agriculture, drink that gets you going and, and continue to follow um, more follow-up on the foie gras conversation. We will be speaking with some folks from the Humane Society later today, so stay tuned for that. Um, lots, of, lots of interesting discussion on this issue um, and a great show today. So thank you to my guests. Thank you to Liz for engineering and a shout out to Odetta for the song that we heard there at the break. Odetta Hartman uh, was our artist. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.